Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association of North America's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Clay Nelly with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Robert Magnuson. Dr. Magnuson is an Associate Professor of Orthopedics at The Ohio State University. He was an author on a paper entitled, Subjective Knee Function and Risk of Failure are Equivalent for Men and Women at Five Years After Meniscus Repair, which was published in the March 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Bob, thank you very much for joining me today. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Let's start maybe with the background of the study and then the main conclusions that you and your authors found with the results. So yeah, the, the background for the study, basically what we were looking at, there have been a lot of um, studies in the literature looking at sex-based differences and outcomes of orthopedic procedures and kind of procedures across surgical specialties, but there really wasn't much work looking specifically at meniscus tears. So we wanted to look at this with our um, series here at Ohio State, basically comparing long-term outcomes, or at least if you consider five years long-term outcomes of meniscus repair, kind of focusing primarily on failure risk, but also looking at patient-reported outcomes and activity level between males and females. And we had a large enough series with our um, nearly 300 patients included that we were able to look at a lot of potential confounders as well. And even after controlling for everything, um, we can talk about a little bit more about the details, but we essentially found no difference between males and females in failure risk, um, patient-reported outcome scores, including the IKDC subjective. And we did note a slightly increased uh, marks activity level in the male patients over the females. That's really the only... Uh, the only difference we noted, so generally we found uh, pretty similar results, which is kind of what we anticipated between the two groups, but it was nice to nice to see that bear out. Yeah, certainly. So as you alluded to, those were kind of anticipated results, and, and the overall uh, failure rates, about 19% in men and 21% uh, in women, is pretty much kind of consistent with the literature, that kind of 20 to 25% meniscal repair failure rate. So were there any results mm-hmm. or anything in the study that did surprise you and your co-authors? Well, we found the, some interesting things we found were the, the activity level was a little bit different between males and females. I, uh, I'm not sure if that reflects the meniscus repair procedure itself or if that repair, if that just reflects the baseline differences in activity levels between the two groups. One of the, uh, the weaknesses of this study is that we don't have preoperative activity level and patient report outcome scores. These are data from uh, these, most of these repairs were done about the range was from about 10 years ago to about five years ago. So we don't have at that time, we weren't collecting preoperative data, so we don't have uh, baseline scores. So we don't know if these were pre-existing differences or differences based on the patients having undergone meniscus repair. My bias is that these are probably pre-existing differences in the in the two patient populations. Um, I, I didn't really. See, I, I kind of thought there would be more differences um, in some of the other factors we looked at. We did kind of evaluate, even though it wasn't the, the uh, key uh, idea of the study, we did look at some other potential predictors as we were using them to control for confounders. For example, differences between um, medial versus lateral meniscus repairs. Certainly, um, the thought in a lot, of current, um, a lot of current studies is that lateral meniscus repairs tend to do better than medial side of meniscus repairs. We didn't really see that bear out in our study. They looked, uh, the results looked pretty similar from, from that regard, and we didn't really see too many other uh, major differences except the typical finding um, that uh, Increased age and increased BMI did decrease our patient report outcome scores uh, across the board in both males and females. 
So you mentioned a couple interesting things there that, that we can dive into some of the interesting statistics. The last one that you just alluded to, increased age and BMI had a negative association with the IKDC and, and MARC scores. So do you use mm -hmm. that info when evaluating patients or even when counseling patients? Do you have a set age or BMI cutoff where you may counsel those patients to say, hey, trying to do a meniscus repair, you know, in these type of settings or this type of factors may have a lower outcome score or may have a lower potential outcome? I do discuss that with people, um, particularly I think, especially the age, I think is more of a marker really than anything. In this study, we weren't able to control for the uh, the presence of osteoarthritis to any extent or some articular cartilage damage. And I think some of these um, menisci in the older folks may have had some more degenerative change and that may uh, be what we're seeing there with the age more than that, more than anything else. But I do discuss, um, especially BMI as a risk factor. We do know that that's been associated in some prior studies with increased failure risk, particularly in certain types of tears, such as roots. But um, I don't use it as a cutoff. I wouldn't say there's a specific age or a specific BMI above which I wouldn't do a meniscus repair. If, uh, if uh, the meniscus looks repairable, I would certainly go for that if that's, you know, that's always our first choice. But I do think that it's something to discuss with the patients, particularly the BMI issue, as I do think that's been shown in multiple studies to correlate with poor outcome. Absolutely. Another factor that you mentioned, I believe the only statistically significant independent predictor of repair failure was the number of implants used, which kind of makes mm -hmm. sense. Obviously, a bigger tear, maybe diff more difficulty healing. But it's kind of interesting that certain types, there was no difference in types of tear. You know, sometimes people and some there's some studies in literature you know, some of those big radial tears or complex tears certainly may be at an increased risk. Can you uh, speak to that, that statistic and, and your thoughts on those results in this study? Yeah, that was a little bit surprising as well. Um, this, this may reflect a little bit of a power issue in that, um, you know, we may not have had enough of a lot of these repairs, like, for example, root tears and certain complex tears really had too few observations to really look at. And, uh, you know, we did have, if you look at the radial tears, for example, even though the difference in the failure risk hazard ratio didn't reach statistical significance, we did see that those radial tears were, uh, you know, 4.9 times, 4, 4 times more likely to have a repeat surgery. So I think what we're really seeing there is just a, uh, a lack of power because we didn't have enough patients to really get to be appropriately powered for that. So in this study, we aren't, I couldn't really say particularly the impact of certain radial, certain tear types doesn't really have an impact. I think we were mostly using that to just control, you know, to be a control for our primary research question about, about uh, meniscus and uh, sex, patient sex. But I think uh, there's certainly, if you had more patients, you probably would see more of these radial tears failing and consistent with prior work. That makes sense. That's great information. So 27% of the repairs were isolated meniscal repairs and 73% were with a concurrent ACL surgery, um, which is quite a few. And so obviously there's many things in the literature that have shown that meniscal repairs with concurrent ACL surgery in many cases do better or the repair seems to heal better or even outcomes are somewhat better. And so I, I believe the numbers are that um, out of those repairs, there was a 22% failure rate in the isolated repairs but also still a 19% failure rate with the ACL, concurrent ACL surgery. So that's pretty close and pretty similar. Did Was that kind of what you guys expected or, or was that kind of surprising at all? Yeah, I think um, I wasn't really sure what we'd find with that, to be honest, because I think the literature is a little bit, uh, <clears throat> a little bit all over the place. Definitely, there have been a lot of patients, a lot of uh, studies in the past <clears throat> that have shown certainly what you're mentioning, that uh, associated meniscus tear does help your healing. 
but there are associated ACL terror, ACL reconstruction rather than desktop healing, but there have been some more recent studies that have kind of contradicted that, that maybe there isn't so much of a difference. That's sort of, sort of more where we are. I think it's a little bit of a trade-off. There's definitely some positive things that happen <clears throat> when you do an ACL reconstruction, <clears throat> excuse me, in, uh, in combination with your meniscus repair with all the bleeding into the joint. We certainly think that creates a better biologic environment for healing, but we're probably, even though we think we do a great job with an ACL every time, we probably don't 100% restore the biomechanics to completely normal. So the biomechanical environment, even in an ACL reconstructed knee, is probably not as good as in a, uh, a, a uh, you know, uninjured, stable knee. So I think it's a little bit of a trade-off. Probably get some better biology, but probably a little bit worse biomechanics. And I think that kind of evens out to be about the same, at least in our series, same or same failure risk. That's great information. Just a little bit of technical um, semantics for the isolated repairs in this study or just now generally in your practice and you and your co-authors, do you guys do anything to augment an isolated meniscal repair? Do you vent the notch or any, any type of injection or anything like that at all to augment the repair? Yeah, we do. So um, we actually published another study last year um, where we looked at the augmentation of some of these repairs with PRP. Um, we've done that over time. Some repairs initially not augmenting anything, and then repair, and then utilizing two different systems of PRP to augment, um, kind of across the board as we were doing it, both with and without um, ACL reconstructions. And we interestingly found that the as one might expect that with an ACL reconstruction <clears throat> and, a, and a meniscus repair, the addition of PRP did nothing. But in those patients that we had a, a isolated meniscus repair we found that the addition of PRP significantly decreased the failure risk. So for that reason, basically all of our isolated repairs at this point, we are doing a PRP augmentation. Interesting. That's great information too. Another interesting statistic from this study, I think 73% of the repairs were all inside. Certainly the tear configuration, the location, many factors go into the type of type of repair technique that's utilized, but can you kind of maybe just take us through just your very basic algorithm, you know, uh, for when you decide to use maybe strictly all inside versus a combo all inside, inside out or inside out or outside and just take us through kind of just your basic algorithm, maybe for the basic type of tear type and location. Sure. So assuming sort of a vertical tear, um, <clears throat> primarily a vertical tear involving in the, the, the posterior horn, their typical repairable meniscus, uh, I tend to do a all inside repair in those patients. Um, because of some of the data we've seen here where we start to see multiple, the more implants that are used, there's certainly some concern of increased failure. I don't, I don't know if that has to do with the implants themselves with these all-inside repairs. You know, we know they make a lot larger punch holes than, or than say, the uh, little inside-out needles do. So if we have a really large repair, if I'm thinking I might need to use five, six, seven implants, that's where I'm leaning more toward using an inside-out technique, both for kind of cost containment and that you're using a lot more of these expensive implants and also punching a bunch of fairly large holes in the meniscus is concerning to me, so I'll move to more of an inside-out repair in that situation. The, addition, the decision to add a outside-in is more, more dictated by location. As I get more into an, the tear extends, a big bucket, for example, that extends well anterior, you know, we're certainly adding some outside-in sutures at the anterior aspects. We're doing a hybrid repair, either in combination with an inside-out or in combination with, a, uh, <clears throat> with an all-inside. Those are sort of the, the traditional indications, these more vertical tears. As we get more into the complex tears, which we're certainly, I think, all trying to push the envelope a little bit more now, particularly laterally, in repairing a lot of these complex and even radial tears, particularly in young patients who are doing some more um, sort of uh, meniscus-based repairs rather than capsular-based repairs with 
implants that don't uh, involve any tethering to the capsule. We're really trying to uh, stabilize these menisci without tethering, particularly laterally. I think there's, there's some concern with that, uh, tethering the meniscus to the capsule all the way around, particularly in these radial tears. So I'm trying to move to some of those capsule-based repairs as well, or some of those, I'm sorry, meniscus-based repairs as well. Excellent. That's great information as well. That's terrific. Well, thanks for joining me today, Dr. Magnuson. Dr. Magnuson's article, Subjective Knee Function and Risk of Failure are Equivalent for Men and Women at Five Years After Meniscus Repair, was published in the March 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal and can also be found at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Bob, thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please remember, if you enjoy the podcast, to give us a five-star review on your podcast device, and please join us next time. Mm -hmm.